Welcome, everyone, to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Josh Sellers, a professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And I'm Henry Thompson, a professor of political science at Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies. This is an interview show in which we talk with scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil dialogue, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. We're two friends who agree on many things, disagree on many things, yet share a commitment to exploring difficult issues in the spirit of improving liberal education and public discourse. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everyone, to the Keeping It Civil podcast. Henry and I had a chance this week to talk with Jonathan Rausch, author, journalist, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, been a key public intellectual for many years now. He's authored many books, most recently, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. So he's been making the rounds and and podcasts and other venues to talk about that book. We were fortunate that he was here on campus at Arizona State University. We had an excellent conversation with him. Hope you enjoy. Jonathan, welcome to Phoenix. We wanted to start by asking you a couple of questions about growing up in Phoenix. Why don't you tell us a few things about what it was like growing up here, the culture and the politics of the state, of the city, and how maybe a little bit about how they influenced you. I was born in Phoenix in St. Joseph's Hospital, not far from here, 1960, a very different world. Mostly I was desperate to get out because in the 60s and 70s, I didn't know it at the time, but I was gay, and I was turned out to be gay atheist Jew, so I knew I didn't fit in, and Phoenix was a small provincial town at that point. I was desperate to leave. It took moving away for me to understand how deeply and positively I was influenced by growing up in Arizona. My house was within eyeshot of Barry Goldwater's house, and one house away from Sandra Day O'Connor, who had a son my age, so I was in and out of, of their house. And what I later realized is that Arizona has a streak that's kind of libertarian, kind of idiosyncratic, goes its own way. I was so proud when Arizona was the first and only state in 2004 to reject an anti-gay marriage initiative. And I realized later in life that, that I got a lot of my intellectual independence from growing up in the Southwest, far from... California, even farther from from the big East Coast cities, and as it turned out, the conventionality that then went with it. So I, when I come back now, it's it's home, except for the fantastic development and the fact that ASU is completely unrecognizable. Were you influenced by the schools here, or as you say, by being in and out of Sandra Day O'Connor's house? How do you think you took up these libertarian or liberal ideas that were floating around in Arizona? I don't know. I'm not a libertarian per se. I am a, a liberal in a small L sense. You know, I believe in in using process and instead of persons to make big social decisions. I think it helped that my parents were both Arizona Democrats, which is kind of a rare breed. People like Bruce Babbitt, they're they're kind of center right, center left, moderate, but that makes you a minority within a minority. That led to some independence. And then there's the Goldwater factor. I don't mean just Barry Goldwater himself, but this sense of kind of flinty independence of being willing to buck the tide. Uh, Goldwater famously, after he retired from the Senate, said, you don't have to be straight to shoot straight. Sense in Arizona that we're out here kind of on the frontier, especially in those days, and that we're going to do what we think is right. 
So I love that about Phoenix. It's also unbuttoned. It was slower. It was less kind of formal. It was less hierarchical and structured. My father moved out here because in the early 50s, he was Jewish and graduated in the bottom half of his class at law school because of the quotas then on Jews in the East Coast law firms. He couldn't get a job. Someone offered him a job way out here in the wilds of Arizona in the early 50s when practically, you know, no one lived here and came and loved the frontier spirit. It's been interesting for us being here. Henry and I are both recent, well, relatively recent, 2017 transplants. Snowbirds. Uh, Snowbirds, yeah. (laughs) It's been interesting to see, from my perspective, the political developments here, particularly as of late. And my sense is that it is different than what you describe now, and it's more establishment in a way. Yeah, it's more establishment, right? It's much, obviously, much bigger. It's much more cosmopolitan. The city of Phoenix, I think, has improved in every single dimension, not just culture, um, but also, for example, it was blanketed with smog, when I grew up here, heavy, dense blanket of, of yellow, brown filth came, blew in from the copper mines and the cars. It's improved in many ways. Um, it's a great city now, I think. Yeah. Arizona was a heavily democratic state after the Second World War, right, with the New Deal and then FDR and everything. And it's not uh, really surprising then that maybe you grew up in a very democratic household here, but the change to through Goldwater, was it palpable that Arizona politics was changing really fast oh, yeah, when you were yeah. a kid? Yeah, we saw it all in real time, the rise of the religious right, which was very different from the Goldwater kind of conservatism. Then as time went on, we saw the increasing extremism of the Republican Party. That did not start with Trump. That started way back in the 80s and 90s. By the 2000s, a lot of Republican moderates were, were being driven out of the legislature. And then, of course, Trump, Kelly Ward, Corey Lake. The Arizona Republican Party now is unfortunately in the vanguard of cultic extremism. And that seems to be having the result that people are moving toward the center, moving toward becoming more purple. And that's something I didn't think I would live to see. It was such a rock rib Republican state in the era I was growing up. That leads me to ask about your recent book, The Constitution of Knowledge, which I want you to describe for the listeners, you know, what what do you mean by the Constitution of Knowledge? But I also want to ask, when did we have uh, a Constitution of Knowledge? Because I was thinking of Rick Perlstein's great history books, including on Goldwater and Richard Hofstetter's paranoid style in American politics. And you know, this attack on reason and the reality-based community, it's always been there. And so I was wondering, when did we have a kind of functional constitution of knowledge? Well, that's a big question. And maybe maybe I should go up initially to kind of the 30,000-foot level and say what I mean by constitution of knowledge. So this is, in case people were wondering, this is my new book. It came out in June. It's called The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. It's available at fine bookstores everywhere. So there are three big ideas in the book. And the first and biggest is that there is a constitution of knowledge. It says that just the free speech, the marketplace of ideas is essential, it's vital, it's important, but it's not enough. It turns out that all that gives you by itself without any structure is a cacophony of opposing views and people striving to display themselves and get outrage and attention and all the things we see on social media. So it turns out to turn disagreement into facts is really hard, and you need a lot of structure, a lot of institutions, a lot of rules. 
and that those things were invented around the same time as the U.S. Constitution by some of the same people. And they do similar things, which is the U.S. Constitution forces compromise if you want to pass legislation. The Constitution of Knowledge forces persuasion if you want to make knowledge. They're both highly decentralized. They both rely on a mix of amateurs and also professionals, representative government. We have experts who make knowledge. They both rely on checks and balances, pitting ambition against ambition politically and bias against bias on the knowledge side. And they both serve the important functions of channeling conflict into peaceful resolution over time. On the one hand, you get a durable constitutional republic, at least we hope durable. And on the other, you get the accumulation of objective knowledge with millions and millions and millions of minds around the world participating. So now to Josh's question, when did we have a constitution of knowledge? Well, it starts in the time of John Locke and Isaac Newton. And it's created by a combination of theorists, philosophers, but also practitioners, working science, scientists, the emergence of modern journalism in the 19th century, the emergence of fact-based government in the 20th century. The oldest origins actually in law, Josh. The idea of a fact predates science. It comes from law back in the late Middle Ages because you had to have an account of facts in order for courts to be able to decide things. So it's a very, very old and constantly dynamic, evolving set of rules and institutions and professionals, and it's always under attack. And it's always going to be unpopular with large segments of the population for all kinds of different reasons. So we've had it for a long time, and it's just a question of constantly rolling challenges and flaws and trying to fix it and bring it forward. And I would argue, alas, some pretty significant dangerous challenges right now. It sounds to me like the constitution of knowledge is something in your book that gets kind of battered from time to time. It's facing constant challenges. But there have also been moments in history where it's collapsed completely. And the example that springs out to me is the collapse of science in Nazi Germany. The Germans had the leading university system in the world in the early 20th century. The United States graduate programs and universities, research universities were based on the model of the German universities. But by the mid and late 1930s, there was almost nothing left. Do you think that there's the prospect of that type of total collapse of the constitution of knowledge and the present day, or is that something that can only really happen under sort of totalitarian regimes? Well, total collapse of that type, when an authoritarian regime simply takes control of the entire knowledge-making process, as the Nazis did, as Stalin and Lenin did, for example, you had Russian science, Lysenkoism, the government actually dictated what biologists could study and what they could conclude. That won't happen here. What we're seeing in the U.S. and other countries is more like an erosion of the conditions that are required in order for the constitution of knowledge to thrive. You need, you need three things to make this work. One, which is the input, is free speech. But then people assume that's enough. You have free speech, the rest will take care of itself. The Internet is reminding us that's not true. It never was true. The second thing you need is the discipline of fact. That is, in order to make knowledge, you can believe anything you want, you know, astrology, creationism, whatever. But in order to get in the textbooks, you're going to have to prove some stuff to a skeptical community 
of critics. You're going to have to subject your ideas to structured contestations, what you guys do at ASU. And it's going to be a long process of surviving that, if you can survive it, if your ideas survive it, to get in the books. And that requires you to maintain the discipline of factuality and accuracy and checking and cross-checking and peer review. And if you're a journalist going through editing, the third thing you need is viewpoint diversity. In a room where everyone agrees, you're not going to have the contestation you need to discover the biases that you're not seeing because we don't see our own biases. You'll think you're having, you're doing science, but in fact, you're in an echo chamber and you're, you're just hearing yourself echo back. So you've got to have viewpoint diversity. You've got to have pluralism. Same is true of the U.S. Constitution. Madison's system is how do you solve the problem of factions taking over? You enlarge the sphere have a big system with lots of different factions so they're in a constant dynamic contest. Same thing. So what if you can undermine those three conditions? What if you're in, say, a university community where you can undermine freedom of speech by using social coercion against people who speak out? What if you're, again, a university community and you can undermine diversity of viewpoint? You're in a discipline where there are virtually no one who's right of center, where it's possible for it. A student, then grad student, getting PhD, moving through the ranks in academia to not even encounter someone right of center. We see that increasingly undermining viewpoint diversity. And then the final, most important, is the discipline of fact. What if you can just unmoor the public conversation from fact? What if you can lie, say, 30,000 times over the course of your presidency? What if you can just spew falsehoods? At such a rate that you completely flood the system. People don't know what's up anymore. The press can't even keep up with it. What if you use disruptive tactics like trolling or you pollute the epistemic environment with conspiracy theories? You falsify consensus. Information warfare is what this is called. It's being used in massively now, primarily by the political right. And that also undermines the conditions that are required for the Constitution of Knowledge to work. One of the things I like about this idea of the Constitution of Knowledge is we can, we can draw a distinction between free speech from a kind of legal perspective and the Constitution of Knowledge. Because a lot of people in these conversations seem to conflate these two things. And to me, it's important to draw a distinction between the two. If I if I'm invited to give a, a talk at a campus and then I'm disinvited because somebody disagrees with my views, that's a constitution of knowledge issue. It's not a free speech issue. You know, I don't have a legal right to speak at X campus or something. So I right. like this framework because that's violating premise number three: viewpoint diversity, which yeah. is not written down. It's not the law. It's not in the constitution. Yeah, we were talking before the show about the difference between written and unwritten constitutions. And having a political scientist and a legal scholar in the room is, is good for that conversation because people forget the written constitution, as Madison said, it's, it's just a piece of parchment. It just, it's just the beginning. The real U.S. constitution is all the norms, the customs, the traditions which people internalize, which institutions teach. Judicial review, not in the constitution. Direct election of senators, not in the constitution. Direct election of presidents. Popular vote, not in the Constitution. So what's really important here is living in a society where people inculcate all the values and norms that we depend on in the Constitution. One of those is, of course, you accept defeat if you lose an election. Well, we need to talk about that in America right now because we have a political party whose standing view is that if we lose the election, it's because of fraud. You in Arizona know something about that because you just went through the massive so-called partisan audit 
and the Veterans Memorial Coliseum a mile from here. So this is a pretty worrisome development. You can undermine either constitution without undermining the letter of the law, but by undermining the spirit of the law. As a law professor, I think in hypotheticals a lot, but here there, you don't have to come up with a hypothetical because we have the example of John Eastman. Yes. And there's a lot of conversation among the legal academy and beyond about whether he should be shunned. John Eastman is a, a former law professor who was involved with the attempt to essentially steal the election for, for Trump and wrote a memo that's received a lot of circulation outlining steps that former Vice President Pence, in his view, could have taken to not certify the election results. And there's been invitations that have been rescinded. Henry was just at the American Political Science Association, and, and I know that they uh, rescinded his invitation, I believe. They moved uh, several of the panels that he was involved in, or all the panels that were organized by the same group that had organized his panel, they moved them online at the last minute with no warning, and it was seen almost as a soft cancellation by the association. In my view, I don't see this as uh, an example of cancel culture because I think there's a line that he crossed and we are in the business of line drawing to some extent in these norms you talk about. But very curious to get your thoughts on either the example with him or similar, you know, tough cases. Well, I think you're right, Josh. I have a lot of material in my book uh, about cancel culture. It's a real thing. It's not just criticism that wealthy, white, cisgender people don't want to hear. It's a real attempt at manipulating the social environment for political advantage, and I think it's definable, and I do that in the book. The seven warning signs that you're being canceled are things like if it's an organized attack, if it's got a secondary boycott saying not only you're under attack, but anyone who defends you will be attacked, if they're lying about you, for example, and other signs. So... I am second to no one in being alarmed about cancel culture. It's a real thing, and it's a major problem, especially on social media and on campuses. That said, actively participating in an effort to overthrow the U.S. government is not, I believe, tell me if I'm wrong, protected speech in America. It is certainly outside the codes of the legal academy, and it's a pretty profound violation of professional norms. So when a legal professional group says, we don't want this. They can do that in the same spirit as if a lawyer has been convicted of a felony. Except this is worse, right? This is on a much bigger scale. And they can say, well, if you've been convicted of felony, you can't be barred. And we're not going to invite you to be a speaker at the ABA. So I agree with you. This is a line too far. So there's a limit to viewpoint diversity. You should have a diversity of viewpoints, even in a scholarly sort of formal framework, but only up to a point when someone is maybe expressing views that violate democratic norms or views well, so that a undermine between, the constitution of knowledge. So we can probably distinguish between someone who writes, say, a political science article and says that the January 6th protesters were operating in their capacity as Lockean revolutionaries, and that's philosophically defensible. I'd say, okay, I disagree with that, probably, but I'm not going to cancel you for saying that. On the other hand, suppose someone is invading the Capitol, beating on police officers with shields that have been forcibly taken them, from them, uh, ransacking the offices. That is not part of academic discourse. There is no reason to defer to that kind of behavior at any level, right? It's violence. 
What about the in-between case where a professor of law delivers a memo to a sitting government, not in a journal, remember, this isn't something that was made public. This is an effort to advise a sitting president and his staff on how to override an election and mount a coup. So which side of the line is that? It's certainly more than theoretical, but it's also less than violent. And I'll leave it to you. I will say this is a very unusual and unique case, and hard cases make bad law. I wonder, these debates are so widespread now about cancel culture. I, I personally resist the term a little bit just because I think it's it's confused a lot of conversations. And I How try so? to, because I think it's been used as an umbrella term to encompass a lot of different things, some of which are distinguishable, and I think it's important that we disaggregate. Again, that's why I like this constitution of knowledge idea, because it encompasses the same set of things, but doesn't fall into the trap of saying this is a legal violation of, of some kind, uh, or I have free speech rights that come into play here when oftentimes we're talking about a private institution or something. Yeah. Those distinctions matter to me and I think should matter to the conversation, but they get conflated a lot, I guess. But I wonder how much of the concerns you raise in the book about cancel culture, you said they're not just campus-specific and they're not just social media-specific, but those seem to be the two environments in which these issues most commonly arise. Is that your sense as well? Yes. So we've talked about big idea number one in the book, which is it's not just a marketplace of ideas. It's a constitution of knowledge. And that's what we've been talking about. We're pivoting now to big idea number two in the book, which is you're being manipulated. What I think will be a lasting idea in the book, or at least what I hope will be, what I think is the reason this book will outlast Plato and Aristotle. And as the sun dies to an ember, the last cockroaches will be crawling over a copy of my book, is the insight that, as strange as it may seem, the kind of mass Russian-style disinformation tactics that we're seeing on the political right, from MAGA, Trump, Stop the Steal, QAnon, anti-vax, and the very different kinds of social coercion that we're seeing on the political left, which is where you're using social power, cultural power to crush dissent, and where you're, you're falsifying consensus by marginalizing, silencing particular points of view. They have different political goals, and they're being done by different constituencies, but they're both forms of information warfare, of epistemic warfare. What's that? So criticism contestation, what we try to do in the Constitution of Knowledge, targets ideas, not individuals. It says we kill our hypotheses instead of killing each other. And that's what allows knowledge to advance at the incredible rate that it has in the past 200 years and especially the very recent past. You guys can make a mistake and you, you don't lose your lives. You don't lose your livelihoods. You lose the argument. And then you can make another mistake. And because we've got a global community of mistake makers, the great trick of science is not that it doesn't make mistakes, it's that it makes them so incredibly quickly and engages millions of minds around the world in finding them. So that's a species transforming technology. But it all depends on being in an unmanipulated social and epistemic environment, an environment having to do with truth and learning, in which people are free to make mistakes, but they're disciplined for it, they're held accountable for it, in ways that allow them to keep working. So what if you demolish that atmosphere? Well, one way of doing that is by Stephen Bannon, Donald Trump's strategist in 2016, said, flood the zone with shit. 
We'll come back and talk about that, Russian-style mass dis- disinformation. It's extremely good at causing people to be disoriented, demoralized. They don't know what to believe. What's another way to do this? You can also use imposition of social conformity by imposing extreme social penalties on people if they don't conform to a particular point of view. And yeah, we see that in academia. We see too much of it. We're also seeing it in other social contexts, uh, increasingly newsrooms, increasingly corporations and HR departments. And we should not think of this as a form of criticism. We should think of this as a way to control and dominate the information environment so what are really actually fairly small numbers of activists can appear, can magnify themselves to seem far more powerful and predominant than they really are by making it seem like everyone either agrees with them or anyone who doesn't agree with them is underground and doesn't speak out. I want to ask you about this. I'm glad you, you mentioned the uh, indifferent institutions because it seems like if you're a free speech absolutist or a strong free speech advocate, it's not the would-be cancelers' speech that you can really object to and remain principled, right? It's not that they're speaking. Yeah, that's right. It's the institutions that are responding to that speech. That's really the target of the criticism, right? I mean, they have to... Uh, no, uh, it's adju- also the tactics that they're using. So, so it's both. Uh, a big part of the problem here is institutions like universities now around the country will be very quick to investigate a professor if a couple hundred grad students get online and denounce them for racism and demand an investigation. So same with employers. Famous incident last year, a Democratic strategist named David Shore, who's actually socialist, tweeted out an accurate summary of a piece of research which some people didn't like in the environment at the time. And there was a mass cancellation campaign online. Someone tweeted his boss, come get your boy, and he was fired the next day. So, so it's the employer, though. That that's you the want employer. To so that's that's what you're going. That's what you're talking about. The soft underbelly of cancel culture is the institutions that are not defending the environment that we need to have. But the tactic is wrong. Also, if you write an article, Josh, that I disagree with, I may think it's outrageous and wrongheaded, and I can say that. But what I should not do is organize a campaign to strip you of your livelihood or destroy your reputation or make all your friends and professional contacts repudiate you. That's out of line because that's a tactic that's not aimed at the idea. It's aimed at the person. And that's against the constitution of knowledge. But is this a distinction between different institutional settings or different realms of public life? Because if I interpret some statistical results wrong in a political science paper, no one's going to cancel me. The peer review process in science seems to me relatively robust still. And it seems like a lot of these dynamics you're talking about are mass dynamics about the participation of the mass public in the constitution of knowledge and social media or on university campuses? Is it the case that that the core of science that you were talking about with peer review and journalistic practices is sort of trucking along just fine, but the rest of the supporting structures in society at large are coming under attack or going in the wrong direction? Or is that too no, I don't clear think a distinction? So. I'd like to get your view on this if you think that's the case. So why am I worried about the world of academia and and canceling there. There are four parts, four major pillars of the constitution of knowledge. I call them the reality-based community. One is academia, science, and research. Two is journalism. Three is law. 
Four is government. And of the four, what you guys do is the long pole in the tent. You are the people doing the research, making the arguments. Just as important, you are teaching and inculcating the norms and traditions of the Constitution of Knowledge. You're showing the undergraduates and graduate students what you have to do to be fact-based, how you frame an argument, the many steps that you have to go through. When academia gets corrupted, begins to politicize its mission, and instead of playing it straight, says, you know what we're really all about is inculcating a certain political viewpoint, then that endangers, I think, the whole fundamental mission. And increasingly, we're seeing what's now being called, new phrase, suppression of scholarship. And that's the actual targeting of scholarship in ways that are limiting the ability of scholars to do their work, float hypotheses. And I'm talking now to academics all the time, not just on the right. Many are progressives, libertarians, who are saying that the environment now is getting scary for them. I, I talked just a couple weeks ago to a guy who's retiring. One of the reasons is he said he realized that he was feeling he had to be very careful about anything he might say in an elevator because you just never knew what could set off a, a campaign. I talked to evolutionary biologist a couple weeks ago who works on sex differences and says, like it or not, the science is that humans have two sexes. It's not on a spectrum. There are a few very, very rare edge cases. She's still teaching that, but she says it's getting harder and she's getting more worried about it. I said, are you scared of your students? And she said, some of them, yeah. I talked to a neurobiologist at university who was teaching autism in her course on brain development because, you know, it kicks in at a certain age and it changes the way the brain develops. Student objected that this could be triggering to students with autism or with Asperger's. Just one student objected. She changed the course. She took it out. She substituted epilepsy. I said, does that work? And she said, well, it kind of works. It's not as good, but it won't get me in trouble. One of the things that's changed in the last four or five years is that there's been awakening both on campus and off that progressives are just as endangered by threats of being canceled, suppressed, and coerced, investigated as non-progressives, it's not more so. Like, you know, your average Federalist Society conservative at ASU Law School, I'm guessing by now is probably pretty well prepared for receiving some flack and some ostracism, maybe not at ASU, but... They are, they are thriving. They, yeah, they are I'm a very glad, large I'm chapter that is that. thriving. But if you're a progressive, increasingly... Progressives are under fire because they're very vulnerable. Their friends and professional contacts are in the progressive world. So these people will come under attack if they rise to the defense of the person being targeted. Second, more fundamentally, Henry, when I talk about canceling as a form of epistemic warfare or information warfare, it's not strictly ideological. The point is not to carve out a few specific ideas that you have to toe the party lie on. It's more like Stalinism. The point is to make people unsure all the time exactly where the borders are that get you in trouble. So they're avoiding entire topics, entire conversations. They don't want to talk about race and crime. They don't want to talk about sex differences. But they're not sure because the line keeps moving. And this is intentional because one of the things you want to do if you're waging information warfare, trying to dominate the intellectual environment, is you want to make people self-censor. 
You want to make them be constantly in doubt about where the boundaries are, where the margins are, so that they will become their own censors. It's what the Russians did. It's what totalitarian regimes do. It's information warfare 101. Make people their own policemen by making them never quite sure where they're going to be safe. But under totalitarian regimes, this is directed by the state, right? But here it seems like it's not, at least in your book. I don't see a sort of a nefarious, centralized actor directing these threats yeah, to the constitutional order in your account. Yeah, that's why it's hard. The, the survey evidence, the anecdotal evidence, everything points to a change. About five, six, seven years ago, when I entered this debate, I wrote a book 28 years ago now. It's called Kindly Inquisitors the new attacks on free thought. And at that point, what we were up against was a very ideological focused campaign by theorists, people with names, a lot of them were in law schools, and speech codes, which were being imposed from the top down, which you could, in many cases, litigate against. Something happens five or six years ago. Different people give different reasons, but no one really knows why. The problem shifted to being more organic, more from the bottom up. Increasingly, you had students entering universities with the mindset of my safety needs to be respected. I don't want to be triggered if someone offends me. That's a form of violence against me. There are viewpoints that I shouldn't have to hear because they're genocidal, for example. They question my existence and so forth. And you increasingly had students coming in with the attitude that they wanted to be protected against heterodox ideas. Uh, and students began saying in surveys that the primary source of the intellectual constraint they were feeling was from their peer environment. In many cases, in fact, what we're finding out is that it's the professors, including the left-wing professors, who were really working hard in the classroom to try to keep dialogue and debate and multiple viewpoints open. And they're often having to fight their own students to do that. Well, this more organic problem of social enforcement of norms, this is much harder to deal with, right? You guys can work in a classroom to create an open environment, but there's not much you can do about the conversations in the hallways and the streets. And this goes back to the point, I think, Josh, that you were making earlier, which is it's like the U.S. Constitution. It's what, what Madison and Franklin and Adams and Washington, what they all told us is if the people don't adhere to what they called civic virtues, the norms and practices that instantiate the Constitution in our lives, it will die. We'll snuff it out. And the same is true in the academic environment. I, I, this is an area of the book, in all honesty, I, it gave me pause. This is towards the end where you're talking about emotional safetyism. This is the phrase you use in the book. Because I think when I think of my role as a professor, and again, I'm in a law school, it's a little bit different. It's very different than the undergraduate environment. But one of my roles is to create an environment where the complexity of this information can be received and we can work through the nuances of these various doctrines and such. And there are some topics, sensitive topics, whether it's uh, you know, rape law or affirmative action. There are, are students who, you know, for better or worse, these conversations are going to, you know, trigger a response of some kind. And my view is it's not to say these topics shouldn't be discussed, but I also don't want to be insensitive to raising these topics if a student is going to have a hard time receiving the information because the topic itself impacts them in some way. And you seemed a bit dismissive of that notion and that they should get thick skin 
and just open their minds to this information apart from whatever past lived experiences they might have. At one point in the book, you say we should do away with uh, bias reporting systems uh, on campus. And I wanted to ask you about that because that struck me as a kind of overreach in the opposite direction that's not sufficiently sensitive to the student experience, for lack of a better phrase. Well, I'd be curious about your experience with if you, for example, give trigger warnings, if there are subjects that you that you don't teach that you otherwise would teach to prepare people for careers in law, because after all, you know, if you're if you're a working lawyer, you may not be able to tell a client, well, you know, I didn't study that in law school. I don't want to take the case because rape is triggering for me. That strikes me as kind of a professional problem. So I'd love to hear more about what you have to say about this as a teacher. The point you raise has two aspects. One is the practical aspect, which is, can you have rules that bias reporting triggers administrative procedures, investigations, professors, other consequences? Can you have procedures like that that in practice won't be abused by activists who want to weaponize those systems, and they can. They weaponize course evaluations. They demand you're investigated. Once the investigation is open, it can drag on for months. Your entire record can be opened, and so forth. So the first question is, can you trust anyone with those processes? And I think the answer turns out to be pretty much not. They're very, very hard to administer fairly with due process. But then there's the second principle question which you're getting at, which is even in practice, should there be forms of speech which, apart from the standard exceptions to the First Amendment, which are narrow, should there be forms of critical discussion of ideas which should be seen as by themselves a form of effectively violence, a rights violation, that the words themselves... Those are the words that wound. Words that wound. Words that wound. That the words themselves are so endangering that people have a right not to hear them and that they can be shut out of the environment. Now, I'm Jewish. An example of that might be the Holocaust didn't happen. I'm gay. An example of that might be, for example, homosexuality is a disease that's treatable with therapy. It might be that homosexuality is objectively disordered. Well, does, does that last one ring a bell? Homosexuality is objectively disordered. Does anyone know what that is? I'm looking in the control room. That's Catholic teaching right now. That is standard Catholic doctrine. Pope Francis has not changed that doctrine, though he's changed the way he talks about it. So are we really going to say that the most sensitive, unsafe-feeling pair of ears on a campus is going to decide what the rest of us can say and discuss? And it's kind of like the U.S. Constitution. What, what Madison and the others tell us is, look, we're setting up a system here which is really difficult. It's going to force you to encounter in politics and everyday life people whose values and preferences are fundamentally different from yours, and you're going to have to compromise with them. And that's not necessarily going to be fun. The Constitution set up to make people who don't want to compromise, compromise. Same is true of the Constitution of Knowledge. And once you begin saying, you know what, you have a right to be exempt from a conversation or even overhearing a conversation or even allowing a conversation that offends you or makes you feel unsafe, then I think you have crossed over a boundary that is not acceptable in the Constitution of Knowledge. I agree with that, but I, I, I still think the, the elimination of the bias reporting system or it sound, another portion of the book, it sounded like you were not opposed, but wanted to mitigate the kind of hostile work environment doctrine. That's where I recoiled a little bit because bias is real. Hostile work environments are real. I think the laws that protect 
uh, women, for instance, in work environments are a positive. And I didn't agree with the, well, just toughen up. This is the you know marketplace of ideas. You're going to hear some things you don't like, and you should have to be subject to that in your workplace or place of learning or something. That's where I push back a little bit. I think we disagree on that. I am fine with limiting those categories of speech, which the courts have demarcated as outside constitutional protection. That includes a lot of stuff, right? That includes harassment. So if you've got a student who's going around harassing another student, uh, if they're following, following me around, calling me a faggot, that's harassment. If they're following me around all day, by the way, yelling genius, 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 that's harassment too. There is a bias incident reporting system that I do like and approve of and try to use. And that's if you have a bias against, say, gay people, report it to me. Uh, and I will have a conversation with you, and we will talk about that. But I say this now as a gay rights advocate for now 30 years, in from almost the beginning on the, on the gay marriage debate, from when it was a, a hopeless cause. The idea that minorities, people like me, that, that we're delicate, that we're sensitive, that we can't tolerate criticism, even hate speech, is, is just so condescending and so wrong. And if we had behaved that way in the struggle for our rights, we, we wouldn't be where we are. The hate speech made us stronger because it gave us a platform to compare ourselves. We were talking about facts and love, and they were talking about ignorance and hate. So it doesn't even help minorities to say, you know what the message is? You don't have to be exposed to that. We, the big protectors, university administrators, whoever it is, we're going to just hand it to you and not expose you to all that. I think that's condescending. I think it's patronizing. I want to use the talk, the point you made about um, not really liking the, the idea of a campus bias reporting system, which I have to admit, I didn't even know that such a thing existed. That shows you how naive I am. You don't like campus bias reporting systems that sort of would control the type of discourse or tone of discourse on campus, right? But at other times in your book, looking forward here to solutions to the crisis of the constitution of knowledge, solutions to these problems about the with the pursuit of truth at the moment. You do talk about things like a epistemic credit score you think might be a good thing to somehow institute online. You talked at some points about new associations of academics and journalists to somehow monitor each other. So is there not a sort of a tension there, right? That on the one hand you say, you're quite liberal. You don't want to have too much top-down control of debate and speech, etc. But on the other hand, when you are looking for solutions, you also look to organizations. Well, civil society more than central authorities. Okay. But yeah, I'll, I take the point. And yeah, there's a tension there. And it's the same tension that we see in the U.S. Constitution. You need the freedom, but you also need the discipline. You need people to behave in certain ways that include civility and respect and recognizing when you've lost an election and not lying constantly. For example, things that are being broken now. And the way that we inculcate those norms and values is through social institutions and civic norms and doing the kind of teaching you're doing. So where I worry is centralized institutions with authoritarian power saying, here's how it's going to be. Here's what you can say. Here's what you can not say. I think the answer has to lie in, for example, you talked about Epistemic credit scores. Yeah. But here the notion is kind of using reputational ratings on social media where people can say, so how reliable has this person's post been? Figuring out if there's a way to use reputation, which is, of course, exactly what you do in academia. 
every day. Henry's stuff is known to be reliable. If it's not, he's going to have more trouble being published. Henry's looking like maybe my stuff isn't so reliable. I hope it's reliable. Otherwise, I'm not a good scientist. Otherwise, I'm not contributing to the constitution (laughs) of knowledge and I'd be very disturbed. But I would like to push back on that a little bit because don't we already have that on Twitter? I mean, I'm not on Twitter, but I know people that are. And you have these pylons, right, where people kind of count the number of likes versus the number of comments. And the assumption is that the comment is negative and the like is positive. And so isn't that kind of the where what it would devolve to an epistemic credit score if you were going to do it on social media? It would just be a pile on the same be. And people, you know, it's just, it's one of a lot of ideas I tick off just to give an example of the larger point, which is the really hard question that social media and digital media have not figured out and need to figure out. Can you come up with mechanisms that are analogous to the mechanisms that were developed over a period of about 40 or 50 years in the early 20th century in mainstream media? that began creating some norms and standards for how journalism would work and began to retrain audiences to be interested in fact-based journalism, to want to pay for it. This was not always the case. American journalism in the 19th century was a cesspool of hyper-partisanship and fake news. I mean, H.L. Mencken in his memoirs, greatest American journalist of his generation, late 19th, early 20th century, writes about how he and other reporters loved to make stuff up and put it in the paper. They thought it was hilarious. They were trolls. Yeah, they were trolls. That's exactly right. So in the early 20th century, this becomes toxic. It becomes a race to the bottom, race for outraged eyeballs. Does this sound familiar? People in the industry begin to realize that it's not sustainable. You see the founding of the early 20th century, the American Society of Newspaper Editors, which first thing it does is promulgate some ethics codes and norms, stuff like uh, run a correction if you're wrong. Make sure it's accurate if it goes in the stuff that's so basic, we take it for granted now, but someone had to come up with this. Meanwhile, you get the opening of journalism schools, which begin inculcating the idea of professionalism in journalism, that there are things you do and don't do. You get the development of the prizes, which again, we now take for granted. I won one of them, I'm happy to say. Things like Pulitzer National Magazine Award and all the incentives further down the chain, like you want your story to be followed up and confirmed and built on by other reporters. And within 30, 40, 50 years, we go from the world of William Randolph Hearst and uh, you give me the pictures, I'll give you the war. Apocryphal, but it captures the spirit of the age. To Edward R. Murrow and what we now think of as the, the golden age of mainstream media. It then falls apart again because we get a new technology. And the question that I'm trying to raise in the book and in this conversation everywhere else is don't just think of this as a technological problem that you're going to solve with algorithms. That's got to be part of it. We've also got to figure out the kinds of social incentives for social media that will get people behaving in a pro-social way and ways to make that appealing to audiences so that they begin flowing in, the, in those directions and turning what's now a vicious spiral into a virtuous spiral. And no, I don't know how that looks yet. It seems challenging. The way you described yeah, it, as a political economist, again. I jumped on the first thing you said, which was people were prepared to pay for quality journalism, right? Well, advertisers, uh, too. Advertisers. So you, it's the whole audience that you're shifting, advertisers, the readers. But there's a business model for it. And yeah, that's right. Mainstream media has lost its business model, and we're seeing the collapse of newspapers all over the country. We're seeing news deserts. Many cities now no longer have anybody covering politics. We're in pretty much a crisis situation in both forms of media. And to me, that's maybe the wickedest hard problem out there. Yeah, yeah. 
But with legacy media, do you have a read on journalism schools? I mean, is a career like yours possible these days? I wonder about writers and their ability to contribute to the the public discourse in a meaningful way. I mean, I make a point to read long-form journalism, but I think I'm unique in that regard. I have the time to do it, for one. That's not how most people are getting their news. And I just wonder if, you know, the, the institutions like the New Yorker, New Republic, National Review, whatever, are going to be around playing a meaningful role in 10 years. Well, I wish I knew the answer to that. My crystal ball, of course, is broken. It's in the shop. I am a contributing writer of The Atlantic. I've been affiliated with The Atlantic since 1989. And one of the pleasant surprises of the current time has been that there is continued and in some ways maybe even renewed interest in long form. It's always been a niche product. Remember, most people, you know, your busy truck driver or care worker, were not subscribing to The New Yorker Atlantic. So these were always kind of elite tastes for people with passion or interest. But the passion or interest are still there, and I'm seeing no diminution of interest from young people who want to do first-class journalistic work, long-form and short-form. In fact, kind of to my surprise, despite the massive economic incentives, the economic signals we're sending to people entering journalism, don't do it, you'll be poor. And despite the fact that I know like two journalists I talked to in their 20s, in the two years since they were hired at this paper, it's lost half its editors and more than half its reporters. And they found themselves, one of them found himself for various reasons, filing his stories at 8 p.m. in the back of his car. They're still showing the same dedication that my generation was showing 40 years ago. They're still showing a sense what we're doing really matters because you know what it does. So the talent still wants to enter the field and its integrity is still looking for ways to express itself. The problem is that doing really good, careful investigative work takes time and it takes money and it takes institutional support. Writing opinion, writing the quick hit, the listicle, going all tribal, hyper-partisan, you can do five of those a day sitting on your sofa with plenty of time for lunch. So that's the challenge. Can we figure out business models and epistemic models to begin remobilizing and reabsorbing, reintegrating that talent? I did want to ask about political realism, if you don't mind. This was your 2015 short book, and it's available online so people for can free? find it for free. Yeah, Free, free ebook, very short including quotes from a number of my colleagues in the Election Law Academy, Nate Persily and Rick yeah. Pildes, and yeah. making the argument for transactional politics. We need compromise. We need pork. We need deal-making. We need smoke-filled rooms. Has your view on that changed at all? I, I ask in part because we have our home senator here, Kirsten Cinema, who is wedded to the idea that the filibuster will bring us together you know, and, and lead to compromise which is in line with the kind of thing you're talking about. We need these institutional mechanisms to produce that kind of compromise. And I'm frustrated by the lack of legislative output. I have not been able to form a conclusion about the right answer on the filibuster, and I don't think it's a fundamental problem because I think if you got rid of it, tomorrow you still wouldn't have the votes in the Democratic Party to, to do the big packages that they want to do. Setting that aside... So the fundamental idea of political realism is that the idealists who've been guiding campaign and political reform in the last 50 years are basically wrong, 
at their model is you want a clean politics. It's very technocratic. You don't want backroom deals, pork barrel spending, uh, money in politics, and that you need to clean it all up. And political realism draws on, as you both know, a lot of political science literature that says, no, you need all of those things. Uh, because it's really, really hard to organize politics. It's like getting up every morning and having to herd 300 million cats. It's a very hard job. You need incentives. You need deal-making. You need private negotiations. You need political machines. This is what the, some scholars of European politics called the cartel party model in Europe, where basically you have two very large parties, and they, they might be out of they power, they out, might yeah. be in power, but they make sure that life is very comfortable for both of them no matter what. Except when it's not, of course. But yeah, that's, I don't really particularly like the phrase cartel politics because I think it, it kind of misses the point. But it does involve a lot of people in politics doing things to organize their world every morning that if you hold them individually up to the microscope, people would say, well, that practice doesn't look especially good. Like I might say, so Henry, I really need your vote on this bill. You know, I think maybe we can get you that second runway for the airport in your district. Some people say that's that's terrible. Let's I build say, a new no. rugby field. That would be his, his ask. <laughs> <laughs> so I still think that's the right approach, but you asked if my view has changed, and the answer is there's been a big problem for my school of thought, which is we relied on political parties and machines for centuries in America to screen out sociopathic candidates like Henry Ford, who wanted to run for president in the 20s. There was a huge national movement to draft him only problem, he was a vicious racist, a conspiracy theorist, and an authoritarian who was going to run on only I can fix it because I'm a man of action. He went to the Republican Party. They said, no dice. You don't have the experience. You can't bring the party together. You're a dangerous guy. He went to the Democratic Party. They said the same thing. He didn't run. That system's broken down. The Republican Party machine and apparatus is now in the hands of what I think is a populist authoritarian party in the European model, not entirely, but enough so that it's a very dangerous situation. And that leaves people like me with a real problem, which is what do you do when the political machines have been captured by the authoritarians? Okay, well, aside from your book, what, what one book would you recommend to uh, listeners who are interested in these ideas about the free marketplace of ideas and civil discourse and the constitution of knowledge? I'm going to promote a friend's book, well, two books. One is Yuval Levin's book, uh, which is called A Time to Build. Yuval Levin is the most important conservative thinker of our time, and he is focusing on understanding and restoring the importance of institutions in American life. The second book is a book called Being You, Being Me by a philosopher named Samuel Fleischacker, who has, it's a very short book and it's a very profound book that looks at Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiment and shows how that can turn into a very powerful account of how you can build a fair and just society in ways that we don't think about. Great. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I enjoyed it.